Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you haven't already. And as Greg said, you made it um, on, yeah, it's, it's a rough day. I firmly believe, though, when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on the new earth, that there will be no more time changes. I do believe it is an effect of the fall, a part of the remnants of Adam's sin in this fallen, broken world. Um, although I'm a sinner, I'm fickle. I love it in the fall. So I changed my tune in the fall, and I love the time change. Anyway, you're here, First Peter chapter 3. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, thank you for your great grace. Um, we struggle on days like this because we're tired and we need your spirit to awaken us and open our minds to be able to hear your word and to see Jesus this morning. And Father, we need to see Jesus as we think about uh, the 50-year anniversary of the events that took place in Selma, Father, uh, we still have a long way to go in our country for racial reconciliation, Father. And so we need Jesus in this country. We need Jesus, Father, because there are traces and elements of racism still residing in each of our hearts. And so we need your son this morning. And pray that you would have mercy on our country the gospel, Paul says in Ephesians, is powerful enough to unite Jew and Gentile, and we know it's powerful enough to unite red and yellow, black and white, and God, we ask you to do that and to bring healing to our country. Open our eyes to see your son this morning, we ask in his name, amen. Albert King was one of the greatest blues guitarists that the world has ever known, some of his disciples include Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, Joe Walsh, and Eric Clapton. His cat scalding tone on his guitar and his howling dinosaur bends are some of the most recognizable guitar sounds in blues music. And the interesting thing about Albert Hall was his physical presence. He stood six feet, four inches tall, and weighed some 260 pounds. And he had these enormous hands with which he could bend his guitar strings in order to create that classic blues sound. Albert King was affectionately called the Velvet Bulldozer. And he always had his Gibson Flying V guitar strapped to his back. His Gibson Flying V guitar that he affectionately referred to as Lucy. And you can see a picture of Lucy there. Albert King was a lefty. He was a southpaw, so he just stood out physically and artistically when you saw him play his guitar. And being a lefty, being a southpaw, gave him a distinct advantage as a blues guitar player. Because Albert King flipped his guitar, which was made for a right-hander, he flipped it upside down so that the high strings on his guitar neck were at the very top of the guitar, and the lower strings are at the bottom. So instead of bending the guitar strings up to get that higher pitch or that higher note, like right-handed guitars have to bend their strings up, Albert King would 
pull or bend those top strings down. It gave him an advantage because it's easier to pull guitar strings down from that high position. And he was able to utilize all the power in his enormous fingers to you know, yank his guitar strings down into these wailing positions to create his classic blues sound. If you haven't heard of Albert King, YouTube him. Listen and watch him play songs like I'll Play the Blues for You or Crosscut Saw or Don't Throw Your Love on Me So Strong or Born Under a Bad Sign. Observe Albert King play his guitar, Lucy, upside down and left-handed and watch him bend those guitar strings down in order to create that classic blue sound that he's known for. Never have guitar strings been bent down in such a way as to capture the heartache and the sadness and the essence of the blues. Well, Peter is going to ask his audience to do some bending too. The apostle Peter is going to ask his readers to bend something down that will create harmony and beauty just like Albert King's guitar. Peter is going to ask his readers to bend grace down. Peter wants his readers, husbands in particular in verse 7, to bend grace down from the vertical to the horizontal. He wants them to recall that they have experienced God's grace and therefore they should show grace to their wives. Peter is going to tell the husbands several things in verse 7. He will tell them that they need to live with their wives in an understanding way. He will tell them that they need to show honor to their wives. He will tell them that their prayers may be hindered if they mistreat their wives. But Peter is not trying to threaten the husbands. He's actually trying to encourage them. And what does he use to motivate them to be caring, godly husbands? It's grace. It's the gospel. As we saw last week, when Peter transitions to talk to husbands and wives in his letters, in his letter, he brings up an old song. So what song does Peter pull up to talk about marriage? When Peter transitions in his letter to address the wives and husbands in these churches, what song, what Old Testament song does he appeal to? What song does Peter quote? What Old Testament song lyrics does he recite as he segues to talk about marriage? You may be surprised, but it's not the song of Solomon. When Peter starts to talk about marriage, when he starts to address husbands and wives, what Old Testament book, what Old Testament song does he appeal to? Surprisingly, it's not the song of Solomon. Now, don't get me wrong. Every marriage needs romance and love and intimacy. And men, husbands, you may need to work on the romance area because you were good at that when you were dating your wife because you wanted her. And then typically we get her and then we fail in that department. So men, you need to date your wife. You need to work on romance. And some of you are not good at it. And so Justin Buzzard has written a book called Date Your Wife, which is full of all kinds of creative ways for you husbands to continue to date your wife. So if you're kind of slow in that department, and when you think date my, date my wife and romance my wife, and you just think flowers, I mean, 
I'm sure you ladies like flowers, but you're probably thinking, come on, this world is full of all kinds of wonderful things. There's got to be something more than flowers out there. Men, get the book, date your wife. You need to romance her and do those things. And the Song of Solomon addresses that. The Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon is the only book in the Bible specifically devoted to love and romance and intimacy and marriage. And your marriage needs all of these things. Your marriage needs intimacy. And if intimacy is not happening in your marriage, in your bedroom, we're on the same page here about intimacy. If marriage is, uh, intimacy is not happening in your marriage, in your bedroom, then you need to talk and you need to work on that. It's very crucial to your marriage. It's not everything, but it is a part of your marriage. But what is shocking is that when Peter starts to talk to wives and husbands in his letter, he never once quotes the Song of Solomon. In fact, the Song of Solomon never enters into the discussion of marriage in the New Testament. Oh, to be sure, it's a hot topic nowadays because pastors love to preach sermons on the Song of Solomon. And, and I don't think it's wise to preach it on Sunday morning. I mean, it's a, it's a steamy book. Have you read it? I don't think it should be preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning, my personal opinion. I'm not against the Song of Solomon as I told you last week, I took a whole class on it in seminary and translated all the way through the Hebrew. I love this book. But Peter doesn't go to the Song of Solomon when he discusses marriage because there's another song that should be played for husbands and wives before they play the Song of Solomon. So what book and chapter does Peter go to in the Old Testament to discuss marriage? It's Isaiah chapter 53. The song of the suffering servant. It's a blues song detailing the suffering of Jesus. It's what we looked at the past few weeks. Peter liberally quotes the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 53 in 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25 as he transitions to talk about marriage. Now, your translation may not point it out, but Peter is quoting the song of the suffering servant out of Isaiah chapter 53 before he begins chapter 3. Your translation may not point it out, but when Peter says in chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, he's quoting Isaiah 53. When Peter says, neither was deceit found in his mouth, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. When Peter says, he himself bore our sins, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. When Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And when Peter says, you were straying like sheep, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. Now, why does Peter do this? Why not quote the Song of Solomon, a book devoted to love and romance and marriage and intimacy? Why not quote the Song of Solomon as he begins to talk about marriage? Why does he quote what scholars call the Song of the Suffering Servant out of Isaiah 53? Why does he quote the lyrics to a blues song about Jesus suffering and going to the cross to die a brutal, bloody death for sinners. Why? It's because Peter wants wives and husbands to imitate and copy Jesus in this way. That's why he says, likewise in verse 1, 
when he addresses the wives. We looked at that last week. And that's why he says in verse seven, likewise, when he addresses the husbands. Because Peter wants husbands and wives to die to their self-centeredness in their marriages. Peter wants husbands and wives to lay down their lives for their spouse the way that Jesus laid his life down for sinners like us. So in verse seven, Peter transitions to address the husbands in the churches that he is writing to. And what he will tell the husbands is this, bend grace down. Peter wants the husbands in the churches that he is writing to, to bend grace down from the vertical to the horizontal. He just mentioned Jesus' suffering at the end of chapter two, and now he will remind them of God's grace in order to motivate them to be godly husbands. Peter will tell them to remember that God in Christ has been gracious to them so they should take that grace and bend it from the vertical down to the horizontal. They should give their wives grace because they have received grace from God. Look at verse seven and hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice the word likewise in verse seven. Just as he did with the wives, Peter is calling the husbands to lay down their lives just like Jesus did. Husbands are called to sacrifice and die to their wishes in the marriage, to die to their wants in the marriage, and they're called to serve their wives. They're called to live with their wives in an understanding way, Peter says. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? It means this, men, get to know your wife. Be understanding. Remember that there are differences between men and women. It means you listen to her. It means that you have not loved your wife until she feels loved. It means you have not listened to your wife until she feels listened to. It means you have not understood your wife until she feels understood. And so practically, it looks like this. Say you're having a discussion. You know, you guys have discussions, don't you? Say you're having a discussion about something. Man, you don't just shoot down her ideas or her thoughts, whatever it is, and say something like this. Well, I'm the leader in this relationship. We're not doing that. We're not buying that. We're not going there for vacation because it's too expensive. So I say no, and the final decision falls on me as the leader of this family, and so the answer is no. That's not living with your wife in an understanding way, and that's not biblical leadership. In fact, that kind of leading will lead you to the couch. If you're comfortable on the couch, then you can, there's your ticket there. Instead, this is the advice that I give people, and I don't remember where I heard it, but do this. Husbands, listen during the day, and wives, listen during the, the day. And then at the end of the day, the husband is called to lead and the wife is called to lean, to lean on her husband's leadership and to lean on Jesus to give her grace. So husbands, listen to your wives and wives, listen to your husbands and have conversations, plural, 
have lots of conversations about whatever it is that you're concerned about. Men do not say, no, we're just not doing that. Listen to your wife all day long. Talk during the day. Wives, listen to your husband, and husbands, hear her out and don't shoot her down. And it may take a few days or weeks of conversations, depending on the situation, but just listen to one another. Remember, men, to live with her in an understanding way means you listen to her. It means that you have not loved her until she feels loved. It means that you have not listened to your wife until she feels listened to. It means that you have not understood your wife until she feels understood. And then at the end of the day or the end of the week or whenever it is that you have to make the final decision, husbands, you are called to lead, to make the final decision, and wives, you are called to lean, to lean on your husband and to follow his leadership and then to lean on Jesus and to keep entrusting yourself to him and hoping in God, which is what we saw last week. So both parties listen all day, as much as is needed for as long as is needed, whatever topic you're discussing. And then when the final decision needs to be made, husbands lead and wives lean. So to live with your wife in an understanding way is to listen to her. But it also means to understand her to study her, to to get to know her, to find out what she likes and what she dislikes and to figure out what makes her tick and to figure out what sets her off. It means you don't watch SportsCenter all day. It means you go to Target with her and you let her shop. That's why you have an iPhone now. So as she shops and shops and shops and you stand around for four hours, now you have something to do. You got your iPhone, so go shopping with her. And what motivates you to be this kind of caring, gracious, listening husband? It's because God has been so gracious to you. Peter says in the middle of verse seven, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's giving the reason why. He's reminding the men that their wives share in God's grace with them. Peter is just reminding the men that God has showered them with grace in his son, in the gospel, in Jesus, so they should do the same with their wives. God has been so gracious, Peter is saying to you, wretched, sinful husbands. And that should motivate you to live with your wife in an understanding way. Peter is just telling the husbands, Bend grace down. Remember that God has treated you kindly in the gospel. And this applies to all of us here, not just to husbands. God has been gracious to you, Christian. This applies to everyone here who's a believer. God has been gracious to you, Christian. God has showered his grace on you, and he intends for you to go and shower others with that same grace. We're not to be greedy with grace. We're not to be grace hoarders. We keep it in and we're like, I love the grace that you give me. I love that you forgive me. I love that you love me unconditionally. I love that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I love that there are new mercies every morning, Lord, but I am not gonna go give it out to those people because I don't have a problem with you, God. I like you. I like this vertical grace. My problem is all those people out there, God, and I 
don't want to extend it to them. That's all of us, isn't it? We're grace hoarders. We like to keep it to ourselves. I love this, God. Don't want to share it with anyone. I'm cool with you. I'm not cool with them. We're not called to act like the government and have people fill out applications for government assistance. But sometimes we act like the government and we want people to fill out an application for grace. And if they qualify, and they never do according to our standards, if they qualify, then we extend them grace. Listen, everyone qualifies for grace because we are all sinners. So bend grace down the way that blues legend Albert King would bend his guitar strings down to create such beautiful blues licks. Bend grace down in your relationships and create beautiful gospel melodies and notes. Bend grace from the vertical to the horizontal and give it to the people in your life that don't deserve it. Let me say that again. Bend grace down from the vertical to the horizontal and give it to people in your life who don't deserve it. No one deserves grace. I don't deserve grace. You don't deserve grace. And neither do the people that you need to give it to. Grace is for people who never, ever, ever deserve it. And that's why you should bend grace down and give it to the people in your life. Milton Vincent said this in his excellent book, A Gospel Primer for Christians. He said this, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I am freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me, for it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. When you focus on and you dwell on, and you rehearse the gospel, and you rehearse vertical grace, it has a way of bending down to the horizontal. And that's the kind of gospel culture that Peter wants to see cultivated in these marriages and in these churches. But then Peter says this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Men, we're called to honor our wives. Back in 1 Peter 2, 17, Peter said, honor everyone. And then he said, honor the emperor, or in our context, the president. We're called to honor every human being, regardless of how they live or how they believe. And we're called to honor our president. Now, wives get included in that list. Husbands are called to 
honor, not belittle their wives. We're called to treat them as precious, as delicate, as something very special. There's a famous story in my family that I remember as a kid. I remember because I was there and I heard it. My dad and my brother and my cousin were with my grandpa, Ralph Magnus, and we were working on his riding lawnmower in the garage. Actually, my dad was working on it for my grandpa, and the kids were just standing around watching. And my grandma opened the kitchen door that opened into the garage, and she says this to my grandpa. Ralph? Touch the red wire to the green wire. That might fix it. And all of us just stopped. Okay, Grandma, we'll just touch the red wire to the green wire. We should have thought of that. That'll fix the lawnmower. Well, my grandpa, who chewed tobacco every day and had this big old spittoon next to him all the time, said this with a cheek full of good money chewing tobacco, if you remember good money. He's got a a wad of good money in his cheek, and he says this to my grandma. Woman, get in that kitchen and do something you know how to do. My grandpa was old school. That's how some men were back in the day. My grandpa was a great guy. I I loved him. I love him. I miss him. That was just not his finest moment. If the apostle Peter were there in the garage with us, he'd say this, Ralph, that's not showing her honor. That's not living with her in an understanding way. That's not showing her grace. Don't treat your wife that way, men. Show her honor and respect. Don't treat her like dirt, as if she were a lesser being. Show her honor and respect. Treat her like she's something precious and valuable because she is. And Peter says that we are to do that because the woman is the weaker vessel. Now, what in the world does that even mean? What does it mean that the woman is the weaker vessel? I think it just means that men are typically stronger physically than women. Typically, men are stronger physically. There are exceptions. I have no qualms admitting, and I'm free in the gospel this morning to admit that Ronda Rousey, the UFC women's bantam, heavy, bantamweight champion in mixed martial arts in the UFC, I have no qualms admitting that she could beat me up. She'd throw me down in the octagon, slap an arm bar on me, and I would tap and I would scream like a girl. I can admit that this morning. Ronda Rousey is stronger than me and she can beat me up. But typically... Men are stronger. That's what Peter is saying here. In fact, I just told my kids this story last week that relates to this. My my kids love hearing stories at bedtime about me growing up in Oklahoma. So I told them about the two times that I got paddlings at school. Maybe you call them swats. You know, back in the day when teachers could give you a spanking at school. They didn't have to tell your parents. They just did it. Or at least that's how we rolled in Oklahoma. Well, The first time I got paddlings was in fifth grade. And I was goofing off in class with a friend and Mrs. Jones was gonna have no more of it so she took us both outside into the hall and I had to assume the position, you know? And I remember thinking, Mrs. Jones? She's like barely four feet tall. This is not gonna hurt. And then she pulled out this paddle about this big that had about 20 nickel-sized holes in it. And I looked at it And Mrs. Jones said, 
The holes? You want to know why there's so many holes? That's so there's less resistance. More air travels through the paddle, so that means I can swing faster and harder, and that means that this is going to sting harder than any paddling you've got before, young man. And sure enough, it hurts, because aerodynamics is a real thing. The only other time I ever got paddlings at school was in eighth grade, and Mr. Stanley, the principal, gave them to me again for cutting up in class. His paddlings hurt too. But of the two, Mr. Stanley's paddlings hurt more, probably because he was a man and he was stronger. That's what Peter is saying here. Typically, men are stronger physically. But notice that he doesn't call the wives the weak vessel. He calls them the weaker vessel. You have to notice that to understand what what he's saying here. He doesn't call women the weak vessel. He calls them the weaker vessel vessel, the weaker of the two. Men are weak too. I had the flu last week and I'm still getting over it and I'm humbled how a sickness could put me in my place. Robert Layton put it like this in his commentary on First Peter. The husband who is generally the stronger yet is weak too. For both are vessels of earth and therefore frail, both polluted with sin and therefore subject to the multitude of sinful follies and frailties. We're all weak and need a savior, which is why Jesus came. And that's how Peter started this whole section. He started this transition to chapter three, speaking to husbands and wives by focusing on Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. We're all weak. That's why Jesus came. What does Paul say in Romans 5, 6 through 8? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You need the song of Romans 5, 6 through 8 to remind you (coughs) that you are weak too, men. Both husband and wife are polluted with sin and subject to a multitude of sinful follies and frailties. And because both husband and wife are weak and polluted with sin, then guess what? Both share in God's grace. What does Peter say in the middle there? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What Peter means is this. Remember that your wife is a sinner just like you. She will struggle in ways that you don't struggle. And so you cannot be hard on her with what she struggles with. That means then, husbands, don't be a football coach to your wife when she shares her struggles. Don't try to fix her, because that's what we do, isn't it, men? They share their problem, and we've got solutions. We can wrap this thing up. I can fix you. You gotta listen. Instead, what we tend to do is we, we hear our wife share their struggle, and we say, just suck it up, honey. Remember, she's a sinner like you, and she will struggle in different ways than you do. In fact, we could all benefit from this. We all need to remember that we are all sinners and therefore we all struggle with different sins. 
The gospel, the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 shows us that we're all messed up. We're all plagued by various sins. What does James say? James, the brother of Jesus, in in James chapter 3, he says, we all struggle in many ways. That's God's word. That means you struggle in many ways. And if you try to tell yourself that you're not that sinful and you're not that messy and that you don't struggle as much as other people, you're a liar. I'm going to go with God's word that says you struggle in many ways. We all struggle in many ways. Our tendency is not to live with understanding when we see how other people struggle. We tend to become prideful. Tend to think, well, I don't struggle with that. I can't believe you struggle with that. Really? Come on. Just, Just memorize a verse and change. I don't want that kind of advice to me when my sin... It's not that easy, is it? We all struggle in many ways, and we tend to get prideful when we see how other people struggle with whatever it is that they struggle with. And yet Jesus, who never sinned, who came for us, and if anyone ever had the right to look down on sinners, it was Jesus, and yet he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He had compassion on us weak, frail, helpless sinners. So we are co-heirs, Peter says, of the grace of life with our spouses. We're heirs of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel. We share together in the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We're co-heirs of what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 4, of that imperishable inheritance that is ours because we're in union with Christ. He says, because you're co-heirs, in that inheritance. Live with your wife in an understanding way and honor her. And then Peter adds one more thing at the end. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What a shocking verse. Our prayers will be hindered when we treat our wives like dirt and we don't show them any respect. Let that sink in for a moment, men. Think about God. How does God the Father treat his son, Jesus? They're both God. They were equal in essence and nature. Jesus is just as much God as God the Father is. They're equal. And yet the Father has the authority. And what does God the Father do? He showers Jesus with his love. And we are co-heirs with our wives of grace, so we're called to shower them with love. And if we don't, Peter says our prayers will be hindered. When we pray, men, we pray to God the Father who has all authority. And when we as husbands don't act like those who have authority are supposed to act, when we don't show love to those who are under us, namely our wives, then guess what, Peter says, our prayers will be hindered. Now, I don't know about you men, but I need my prayers to get through. I can't afford to have any missed prayers. I can't afford to have my prayers hit the ceiling and stop. But Peter gives the warning that if we won't lead like God the Father, if we won't look to Jesus and sacrifice and lay our lives down for our wives, then our prayers will be hindered. The Greek word here for hindered was a a word used in Peter's day to, uh, it was used of roads that were blocked or impassable. You couldn't get through Our prayers will be blocked. They can't get through to God if we mistreat our wives. But then, in a few verses, in verse 12, 
Peter will quote Psalm 34 and say that the Lord's ears are open to our prayers. So, so which is it, Peter? Does God always hear our prayers or sometimes are they blocked? Well, the Lord's ears are always open. But we can mess that up, men, if we're jerks to our wives. And I think what Peter means is that this is more of a habitual pattern. This is who you are as a person. It's not that God is not going to hear your prayers if you get in an argument with your wife and you leave the house and then suddenly God's not listening to you. Like you get in an argument with your wife and you leave the house and drive to Starbucks to get a coffee and and on the way there, you get in this wreck and you're in a ditch and you're bleeding to death and it's not like you're saying, God, please save me. Like God's gonna be like, la, 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 not listening. You're a jerk to your wife. I don't listen to your prayers now. He's not talking about that because if that were the case, God might never hear any of the husband's prayers. Amen, ladies? Because we're sinful. I think it means if you habitually mistreat your wife, this is a a pattern, the way you live. You habitually do not show her honor. You're a jerk all the time for days and weeks and you don't want to reconcile or offer forgiveness. And Peter's saying, your prayers will be blocked. And why would our prayers be blocked? Because we're not extending grace to our wives. So in short, Peter is just saying to the husbands, bend grace down. Take the grace that God has shown you in Christ and give it to your wife. Remember that all that God is for you in his son Jesus, the benefits of the gospel that you feast on and that you love, remember that and then treat your spouse the same way that Jesus treats you. John Piper describes the powerful effect that justification by grace alone through faith alone can have on our marriages. And this is so countercultural because we just went, give me some practical tips, Pastor, on how to be a better husband. And doctrine and theology is there to help us. I mean, who knew that the doctrine of imputation, being credited with the righteousness of Christ, being blameless in God's eyes, who knew that that could actually change our marriages? You see, we want all the practical stuff. Tell me the practical stuff. I'm not against that. But justification by grace alone, through faith alone, God declaring you righteous in his eyes because you believe and trust in his son Jesus and so now you're blameless and he doesn't ever see your sin. Who knew that that wonderful, beautiful doctrine could actually change our marriages in the day-to-day muck and mire, in the ebb and flow of dishes and changing diapers and dirty laundry and buying groceries. Here's what John Piper says. But what if one or both of the partners becomes overwhelmed with the truth of justification by faith alone and with the particular truth that in Christ Jesus, God credits me for Christ's sake as fulfilling all his expectations? What would happen if this doctrine so mastered our souls that we began to bend it from the vertical to the horizontal? What if we applied it to our marriages? In our own imperfect efforts in this regard, there have been breakthroughs that seemed at times impossible. It is possible for Christ's sake to simply say, I will no longer think merely in terms of whether my expectations are met in practice. I will, for Christ's sake, regard my wife or husband, 
the way God regards me, complete and accepted in Christ, and to be helped and blessed and nurtured and cherished, even if in practice there are shortcomings. I believe there is more healing for marriage in the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness than many of us have even begun to discover. What if you began to bend God's grace from the vertical to the horizontal? What if you started viewing your spouse or your children or your roommate as righteous in Christ, blameless in Christ? What if you began to see them as complete and accepted in Christ the way that God sees them? What if you began to regard the people in your life the way God regards you in Christ? We might start bending grace so much that it made beautiful, sweet, soulful gospel melodies in all of our relationships. If we started regarding other believers in our families, other believers in this church, the way that God regards us, complete and accepted and blameless in Christ, if we started doing that, then we might start cultivating a gospel culture in all of our relationships, in our families, in our marriages, in this church. We'd start bending grace down so much so that we started creating these beautiful, sweet, and soulful gospel melodies that pointed to Jesus. But we will never do this perfectly. Understand, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We will never bend grace down perfectly. Only Jesus is perfect. But the good news of the gospel is that God bent down. He showered us with grace in Christ. God bent grace down and created sweet, beautiful, soulful gospel melodies in his son, Jesus, in the gospel. And so there's grace to forgive when we haven't been the husbands and the wives that we are called to be. There is grace for the times when we haven't been the husbands that God has called us to be, when we haven't been the wives that God has called us to be, when we haven't been the children, when we haven't been the Christians that God has called us to be. There is grace, forgiving grace, vertical grace that comes down to us even when we fail to bend grace out to others. That's the good news of the gospel. Because frankly, that's where most of us live. So by God's grace, let's have marriages and homes and let's be a church that bends the strings of grace down so that we create beautiful, sweet, soulful gospel melodies for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so gracious and merciful to sinners like us. And that's, that's who we are, Father. We want our own way in our marriages. We want our own way in this church. We think our way is right. We want to call the shots everywhere we go because we're sinful and we're selfish. Would you forgive us? God, I pray that we would take the grace that we've received from you and extend it and bend it 
so that others may benefit, so that it would create these gospel melodies and songs and sounds that would sing of your son and his perfect life and death and resurrection, and people would be drawn to him as the gospel is put on display in our marriages and our families and in this church. It will only happen if you empower us by your grace. Do it, we ask, for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.